good to be back. Thank you for your prayers for me and the travel and watching over my family and helping to care for them as I was away. It has been an excellent yet quick uh, two-week trip around the world. Uh, Eleven flights. Very hard to keep up with what time it is right now. Uh, came in Thursday night, and then we had the conference Friday and then Saturday, so uh, really not sure what day it is or what time it is. I think I'm supposed to be sleeping now, but I'm not positive. Uh, but very thankful to be here. Uh, today, I, I just want to I want to give you a, a, a jet tour of the book of Revelation, some of the stuff that I've uh, looked at and, and kind of give you an overview of it. But at the same time, I have like multitasking I want to accomplish. I also want to show you a couple of pictures and, and give you a little bit of an update on uh, the ministry and some of the things that we did while we were on or while I was on the other side of the planet. So uh, the conference this week was is online if you didn't get to see it, um, Mr. Carver did The Life of Christ, and it was excellent. Anybody that was here, you know. It, if you weren't able to come, again, I would strongly advise you to go online. And I think we missed the first session, but after that, we got the rest of them. And we can get the notes to you if you want to have the notes, too. All you got to do is talk to Stephen, and he'll give them to you. Um, but I want to, he left off with the ascension. Jesus went up to heaven. And so I'm going to do Jesus returning and the events surrounding his return. I've spent two weeks traveling around the world, as I said, and as I did, I was struck by the utter depravity and deadness and darkness of the world. Everywhere I went, I saw the curse on full display. I just want to give you some pictures to kind of give you an idea. Hopefully this will work. There you go. This is a Buddhist statue in the Bangkok airport. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, it, it was an enormous thing. I mean, people came out of the, you come out of the, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, the place where they check your visas and stuff. It walked out, and immediately this thing's sitting there, and people are putting food on this little table, on these little tables here. They literally make sacrifices to the these idols um, just it kind of jumped out at you right away and this is what you're dealing with um, people were sitting there praying and praying to their Buddhist God here uh, then after that after I traveled from Bangkok I went over to Mandalay I flew into Mandalay Mandalay is uh, in the middle of Myanmar, uh, it's close to their uh, new capital. I don't know if y'all saw in the news, they elected the lady, uh, uh, that, which is great news for their country, but there was a lot of upheaval at the time. But uh, a famous missionary named Adoniram Judson, y'all have heard of him. If you haven't, you need to read about him. That's spelled wrong. It's supposed to be A-M, I think. Uh, but here he is. It was back in the 1700s and uh, 1800s, he went to Myanmar, or Burma at the time, and uh, one, the first seven years that he was there, there were no converts. He, he spent years trying to convert the Buddhists there. Uh, now I think there was just a few, a handful. Uh, but then the war, a war broke out with England, with Burma, and he was taken captive and taken to this area right here. I don't know if you can see it, but this is a, on the other side of the river, it's a huge castle. Adoniram Judson came before the king here, uh, before a king, and they uh, arrested him, made him a prisoner of war, and he was, every night, he would be hung up by his feet, and for well over a year, he would sleep on his shoulder, being hung up from the thing with rats and stuff running around his face in this prison. All for the cause of getting the gospel to these people. It's just a totally different mindset. Uh, 
very thankful in, in that it was a, a good eye-opener for me and a reminder. I'm sitting here complaining about while I was flying over there, uh, my stomach not being, being all that great and the food wasn't all that wonderful, and I was reminded I could be hung up in a cell upside down. Um, I, think, uh, uh, I think these things were sobering for me and reminded me of just how, how important the gospel is and, and those that went before me. Uh, then there was this uh, Buddhist temple in Yangon and, and Mandalay. Uh, this is the one in Yangon. It's unbelievable. I mean, thousands and thousands of people go to this. Um, I would argue probably even millions go to this temple in Yangon. And then up in Mandalay, they were, they were all over the place, but I snapped one as I was going by. The Buddhist temples everywhere. Then there's the refugees and the war that's been going on in this country. These kids uh, were right outside where I was teaching, and they were always playing. Uh, it always blows me away when I go in, in other countries and you see the smiles on the kids' faces when they have nothing. You know, they're living in bamboo shacks with no electricity. They walk outside and they walk down a long path just to use the bathroom at night, and it's a group shower area where everybody is. And these kids are, were just having a blast toting each other around on their backs. And with It was just a beautiful picture. But these are some of the refugees that have been displaced from their areas. Uh, there's well over 100,000 of them that um, the churches in that area take and allow their property to be used for these houses, these bamboo huts that are built on their church property. And so these were some of them. Uh, I don't know if you can see the picture. It's, it's not real good, but the, this is one of the guys that didn't have a hand, and he's living in one of these huts. He was one of the soldiers. Uh, but again, we went to one of these refugee camps where there were rows and rows and rows of houses and people living in them, the way that their electricity, uh, they don't have it, but they have solar panels for like their, for radio or something like that, but that's about it. They live on basically very little, uh, you know, rice, beans, things like that, thousands of these houses. I, I, I bring all this up because it reminds us of just what it's really like in this world. I think we forget where we are, and we forget what we have. We don't realize how good we have it here. Um, we see it on television, but it, it, we, we're often desensitized. And the television focuses only on the things that will get their money. They, they could care less about telling the true stories of people that are starving to death or living in very bad situations. Uh, but this is what the world really is. Uh, this is a Islamic temple in Michina, where I was. You can barely see it, but and then this was a new Hindu temple that went up went, since I've been there. Gigantic, huge thing. I, I drove by. This picture was better online than the one that I took, so I spilled it off a line. But uh, it's a huge thing. Hinduism came out of, birthed out of uh, Buddhism. But ultimately, they're all these false gods and false worship. Uh, this is the church that I spoke at. It was, it, it, it's in the shape of a, uh, a cross. Most of their churches are in the shape of a cross. And uh, there was probably room for two or 3,000 could be in this church. Uh, it's huge. Um, it, to give you a little idea uh, of what's happened in the church in, in, in Myanmar, in, in these, the Kachin people, they're Kachin Baptist people. Um, Judson went to the south of Myanmar. After that, another guy named Ola Henson went to the north. And he formed some, uh, uh, he established some churches there. And these people became, this tribe became Baptistic. They became Baptist. Uh, however, after about 40 or 50 years, they started sending their pastors out to seminaries in Asia and Europe. Well, that was not a good thing to do because you send your pastors to Asia and Europe. At that time, things were going very liberal. 
And that meant that they started teaching that the Bible is not inerrant. It's not the real scripture. So the church is very watered down. The gospel is, for all intents and purposes, uh, lost from most of the churches. They go culturally. They stick together as Kachin Baptists, but they don't know what Baptist means. They don't know what the Bible means. So I'm teaching, to give you an example, one of the ladies that I was, uh, uh, was listening uh, yes, I did have some lady preachers there that were listening, hoping and praying that they would uh, study the Bible, and we all understand that that's not our take, right, on Scripture. However, we are teaching them the Scriptures. As we were doing, she asked a question. She raised her hand and asked this question. She said, so what happens to babies if they die? Do they go to heaven or hell? Great question, right? Um, so I proceeded to give my understanding of scripture on that and you know I do believe that babies that die go to heaven and I explained that to her and she raised her hand again and she said well I believe that only the babies of good parents go to heaven she was the pastor that was leading the conference okay so that gives you an idea we got a problem don't we the, the the doctrine, we don't go to heaven based on how good our parents are, much less how good we are, right? We go to heaven based on what Christ did and who he is. Uh, but graciously, I was able to kind of direct her in a different way and call her to look at scripture. And uh, a guy stands up on the front row, and I was like, uh-oh, here it comes. And <laughs> he was the leader of the whole conference. And he looked at me and said, what he said is what the Bible says. That's what we need to go with. So uh, I, I was praising the Lord for that. Uh, there are some people that uh, want the Bible, and that's why they've asked me to come back. Uh, we might do our vacation there next year. Uh, we'll see, though. Y'all can <laughs> pray. won't be much of a vacation, but it would be, it would be a learning experience for us all, right? Um, but it's a very watered-down church that needs the gospel. Then there was Taipei. We moved over to Taiwan and uh, went to this temple. This is a, I, I called it the Mix and Match Temple because that's what it is. You can be any religion and go to this place. Uh, and when you go, you, do, you can do bye-bye. Um, no, that's not bye-bye, but bye-bye is a type of religion and uh, a, a religious practice what, these are sacrificial. Literally, they brought their, their food to sacrifice to their gods. They would give these food offerings. Um, ultimately, they're very superstitious people. So they think if you give this stuff to the gods, then they will accept or bless you in some certain way. You know who's really hot in Taiwan right now? You'll love this. Joel Osteen. Yes, he's hot in Taiwan. You know why? Because the religion that he teaches is the same as bye-bye same stuff and that is you believe in you know you call out to God and he'll give you some good blessings and that's what they do so this lady was here at the front giving worshiping her God and calling on them there were hundreds and hundreds of people at this temple just grieving very very grieving to watch making sacrifices and burning incense and things like this this guy right here let me see if I can get this to work <coughs> I was going to show you what bye-bye. This is what they do. I don't know if it's going to work, though. Nope, it's not going to. Maybe it will. Nope. Oh, well. I tried. Basically, they take incense and they do this stuff. And they go to each section, like you have your kids, your children, your family, or your job, your career, and your finances. And you go to each one of these stations and you shake the incense and go in front of it and pray to that God, and then that God will bless you if you, um, you pray to him. So this is the world that we live in. Do you understand, folks? This is what we're dealing with. This is a God back in the back that people pray to. And Caroline grabbed this shot. when I was sitting there just perplexed at how bad it was, and she grabbed it while I was there. Then there's the orphans and the abortion problem that's rampant in Asia. Um, it's a miracle if you make it out of the womb in Asia because most kids are aborted. Uh, 
China just changed their policy to two children. That won't change real easy. Most of the time, little girls are killed. If they find out immediately, they're killed in the womb. It is as common as any kind of uh, medical procedure. It, they just children, they kill their babies, unfortunately. But there are, are some orphans, and the orphans that uh, I also got to teach at this uh, uh, seminary, um, but this guy right here is a master's grad and is now teaching at the seminary there. And he has, this one guy has 20 orphans that live in his house. Uh, this preacher that makes $40 a month. It's amazing what God does. Uh, but they're all over. These orphans were everywhere I went. Every city I went to, there were tons and tons of them. This was a little orphanage we went to in, uh, in Taiwan. Uh, if you can... See real closely, that's uh, Elliot there. That's Elliot. This lady is the one that's been there, a lady that's been working in this orphanage for 47 years. Her and her husband came from the States. Um, and they have this orphanage, just like the George Mueller story. It's an amazing story. They've never asked for a dime from anybody. They just opened a new building, $2.5 million building completely paid for, no debt, never asked for a dime. Uh, any of you college students that are like, oh, I want to go do something cool. I want to go serve around the world. Here's an opportunity for you. Ready? You can go to this place. They will let you stay there for free. All food, housing, everything for free if you'll just help them take care of the babies and the kids there. And you can stay there for a year or six months or whatever. Uh, so if you want information on that, I can help you. Um, it's just a, an amazing uh, ministry. You can see Ryan was dealing with this little boy. It was a great. We had a great time holding the babies and, and taking care of them. Um, look at Ezra down here. <laughs> all, the, all the gear kids were holding the baby. Um, it was just, and then Ella was feeding. So... Uh, it just it, it just really opened it. There's adding and Caroline. I, I I would have taken if I could have taken them all back. I would. Have. <laughs> uh, we we talked about how, what's involved with that. Um, you can imagine, folks. This just ripped your heart out, sitting there seeing all these children. Uh, this is a world we live in, you know? This is what we're really dealing with. And then I flew back into New York City and saw that. Um, so covered a lot of countries. Uh, covered five countries in, in 14 days. This is Myanmar here. And I was up in this area here. Um, there are 53 million people there. Um, out of the 53 million... 89% uh, are Buddhists. That means about 51 million of them are lost. 51 million people that are lost. Then I went. On, I was also in Thailand, down here, in Bangkok. 67 million people there, and 66.4 of million of them are lost. 66 million. Then I went on to Taiwan, over here. There were 23 million people there, and out of that, 22.7 million of them are lost. Buddhist, Hindu, and all the other religions. Uh, I got to stop in Hang Hong Kong, which is now China, if you all know, part of China. There's 1.4 billion people in China. 87, uh, most of them, 87%, are uh, not religious or traditional, Confucianism and things like that. That's 1.2 billion people. A total, the best case scenario for China is there's 1.36 billion people that are lost in that country. And then you get to America, and there's 312 million of us. 
and the stats there are obviously 152 million probably are lost if you consider Protestants. Folks, you understand that that's uh, in those five countries I went to, there's 1.65 billion people that if they died tomorrow, they'd go to hell. That's grieving, isn't it? 1.65 billion people. You need to let that sit in. I think when we think of numbers like this, we, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I kind of put it out of my mind during the week. Do you put it out of your mind? It's almost like you don't, you don't think about it. This is grieving, isn't it? We have so much. We have so much, don't we? If we're not sending missionaries, we should be going. Several of you have talked to me and said, man, I think I could could go to the mission field. Go! (laughs) Don't wait on me. Go. Folks, we need to be making disciples and looking to the Lord, right? I just want to challenge you to think on these things. We need to quit burying our heads in the sand. There are people that need the Lord. And God's not going to put up with this forever, is he? Does God, that stuff angers God. He hates those false religions because they reject him. How long is he going to put up with it? I don't know. Maybe another week, a month, a couple years? But you know what's going to happen when he comes back? It isn't going to be pretty, folks. (laughs) How do I know it's not going to be pretty? Read the book of Revelation. That's how you know. It's ugly. Take your Bibles and look over at Revelation. If we can make it, if you make it through the first five chapters, you think you're okay. But then after that, it turns tough. Ugly. The book outlines... Pretty simple. There's an introduction in verses 1 to 8. I want to give you that overview. So in verses 1 to 8, you see the introduction to the book. Then in verses 10 to 20, there's the things which you have seen. That is the first vision that Paul has or John has while he's on the island of Patmos. It's mentioned in verse 19. Notice in verse 19, chapter 1, it says, Therefore write the things which you have seen. That's verses 10 to 20. And the things which are, which is verses chapter 2 to, and chapter 3, and the things which will take place after these things. That's chapter 4 on in the book. It's very easy. It's laid out very clearly in the book. And then there's a conclusion at the end in 22 to 6. If you just take your Bible, I'm going to kind of walk you through it. So verses 1 to 8 is the outline, and then... 10, starting in 9 and going down through 20, is the, the things which you have seen. John's visited there on Patmos and given a glimpse of the glorified Jesus. Then in chapters 2 through 3, you see the seven letters to the churches. The church in Ephesus, Myrna, verse 8, and Pergamon, verse 12, and Thyatira in 18. And then chapter 3, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea, those are little epistles that he wrote to them. We went back, we went through those a while back ago. And then starting in chapter 4, we saw last time when I was here, the, the creation screams that God would reconcile his world and that the creation should be worshiping God. But then there's this tension that unfolds in the beginning of chapter 5 because the Creation is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be worshiping Him. So that tension unfolds at the beginning, and it says, Who is worthy to open up and break its seals? In verse 2, as we saw in our reading today, and that begins to unfold the Lamb of God that will stand up at this point in, in, in the future, and He will say, Okay, I'm taking back the planet. And he's going to begin the process of taking back the planet. 
He's going to open the seals, and those are the judgments. So if you look at chapter 6, as soon as we get to chapter 6, you start seeing these seal judgments unfold, one after the next, after the next. And these aren't just figurative language or anything like that. They're very dramatic and detailed events that are going to unfold. And if you read through chapter 6, and we'll see in a little bit, there's nothing like this that's ever happened in the world. A third of the population has never died like this. And we'll see as we go along. Then after that, you see in chapter 7, God's mercy, where he saves the 144,000 and seals them along with a great multitude in chapter 7. In chapter 8 and 9, the trumpet judgments begin to unfold. So if you look there, chapter 8 and 9. So how many judgments have we had so far? Chapter 6, 8, and 9. Then in chapter 10, there's a summary or an explanation of what this judgment will be like. It's bittersweet. How is it bittersweet? How is judgment bittersweet? Well, it's bitter in the sense that God is going to pour out judgment ruthless judgment, horrible judgment on the earth, but yet it's sweet because God is reclaiming His creation and it's great that Jesus is coming back. It's bitter and it's sweet. Then we see in chapter 11, God does give mercy to the world for the last three and a half years of the, uh, of the time before Jesus returns. There's going to be two witnesses that will proclaim and call for repentance. Mercy is seen. But at the end of that, the seventh trumpet, in verse 15, the seventh trumpet judgment begins to occur. In chapter 12, we have an explanation of this continuous battle between Israel, Jesus, and Satan. It's used with figurative language about a red dragon, a child, and then the battle that goes on. Chapter 13, we have the explanation of the rise of the Antichrist and the beast from the sea, the Antichrist and its kingdom and the false prophet. Chapter 14, there's another step back, and let's look at those that God has sealed, and what a preview of what's going to happen with the 144,000. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 14, there's this, this announcement that a final judgment is coming. Again, God's mercy that He tells the people that His judgment is coming. In verse 14, it switches over to the reaping of the evil of the world. And this is very near the end. By this time, it's cranking up and judgments are unfolding in larger amounts and fast. In chapter 15, there's a review or a preview from heaven before Jesus' return. Chapter 16, more bold judgments. We see that all in chapter 16, one after the next after the next of doom on the earth. Then chapter 17 and 18, there's the judgment of Babylon. Both the economic and the spiritual Babylon are both going to be judged right before the return of Christ. And then in chapter 19, we have the hallelujah section. That's found in verses 1 to the end of chapter or the, chapter 19, verse 6. The marriage supper of the Lamb in chapters 19, 7 to 10. Then we have that beautiful picture, look in verse 11, all the way down to the end of chapter 19, we have the coming of Christ. This is the return of Christ. It actually flows over into chapter 20, verse 3, all the way down to verse 3, where all the wicked are judged. Anybody that remains is judged. And after that, we have the millennium kingdom, where we see thrones and Christ rules on earth with His people. Then Satan is released in verse 7 to 10, where at the end of the thousand years to deceive, and then there's the final judgment in verses 11 to 15. After that, there's the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 21 and chapter 22. That's that beautiful time when the world will be recreated and the eternal state will happen. And then there's the conclusion from verses 6 to 21 in chapter 22. So that's basically an overview of the book. I want to kind of walk down and look at a couple of principles here, just some things for you to think on and apply to our world that we live in. First, who is Jesus? What's the book of Revelation reveal about him? Well, it's everywhere. Turn back to chapter 1. We'll walk right down through the book. Jesus is God. This is very clear. Look at verse 4. 
verse 4 to 5. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us a kingdom, made us to be a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This whole section shows the Trinity. You see the idea of the Spirit, the Father, and the Son are all in this part that explains where grace and peace comes from. Only God gives grace and peace. Jesus is revealed as God in this whole book. Over and over and over we see him as the sovereign God. Second, Jesus is the sovereign. Look over at 13. In the first vision in chapter 1, verse 13, we see Jesus is described that way. It says in verse 13, And in the middle of the lampstand I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were like wool, white wool like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished like burnished bronze when he had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, referenced from Isaiah uh, with, the, uh, with God's voice. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. You know, Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the planet, and what we see throughout the book of Revelation, this is, I would argue, this book shows the sovereignty of God more than any book in all the Bible. And we see it because he's telling the events before they're going to happen. And he tells them with great, precise details. And one word's used over and over throughout the book, and it's the idea of given. Even the evil that comes about on the earth is only because God gives it to them. He gives them the authority to do this all because of a judgment on the wickedness of the world. The world should be taking care of the orphans, shouldn't it? There shouldn't be any orphans, should there? There should not be abortion. There should not be all these false gods. One day, God's going to judge. Jesus will be the sovereign that will judge this planet. We all know the gospel, don't we? We know how God took our wrath on his son, placed it on his son, and we are saved because I am. We have this great hope, but as a whole, the world rejects that truth. They don't like God. One day, God will judge them. All these temples are going to be destroyed, and the sovereign Jesus is going to do it. We see it all the way, Revelation 12, 13, the fall of Babylon, all these things. Yet throughout all of this, we see Jesus is still faithful and true. Look at 3.14. You see it. This phrase of him being faithful and true is mentioned over and over. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the amen. The faithful and true witness. That's Jesus. Faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this. He's described this way numerous times in this book. Jesus is also alive from the dead. We see this in chapter 5, don't we? Look over at chapter 5 again. Remember the tensions there. Who's worthy? In verse 6 it says, And I saw between the throne the four living creatures and the elder and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Standing as if slain, what's that imply? That implies that he had died at some point. But he's alive. He's standing. He is the alive from the dead Savior. He's also called the Alpha and the Omega. Look back at chapter 1. If you ever get a Jehovah Witness and you want to witness to him about whether Jesus is God, this is great. Watch this. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who's that talking about? God, right? They may say, well, this is the Father that's speaking here. Okay, well, then turn over in your Bibles over to chapter 21. Chapter 21. 
In chapter 21, we see this Alpha and the Omega mentioned again in verse 6. Look, it says, we'll start in verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, Okay, so this is the Father, right? Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Okay, so who is that? Okay, is it the Father speaking here? I think so. But then look over at chapter 22, 22, 13. Start in verse 12. Jehovah's Witnesses are buying it at this point. They're saying, yeah, the Alpha and the Omega is who? The Father, God, right? Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Who is that? That's Jesus coming, right? Verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's Jesus. Who's the Alpha and the Omega? God. All three persons of the Trinity are the Alpha and the Omega. That's no doubt, folks. Very clear he is. The Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the Almighty, and this is another one of those. You can see it in 15.3. Look back over at 15.3. And they sang a song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Who's that? Jesus saying... Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who's Jesus? He is the Almighty. He's the King of the nations. This is the song of God and the song of the Lamb. We see this over and over. Also, Jesus speaks with authority. Look at 19, chapter 19. This sword, the two-edged sword... I love this. In chapter 19, verse 15, we see from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. What is this? This is his spoken authority. When he speaks, listen, at, at Armageddon, when all the nations come together against him, all those that are left, which is probably less than a billion people when you do all the calculations, but those that come against him, it's not going to be a fair fight. You know why it's not going to be a fair fight? Because when he speaks, everybody dies, and then the birds clean up the mess. It's, Jesus doesn't need swords. He doesn't need nuclear weapons. All he needs to do is speak, and everybody dies. That's what happens. You see the rest of Revelation 19, you'll see it. That's what he calls all the birds together. Why does he call all the birds together? To eat the flesh of the ones that he killed with the sword that comes out of his mouth. He speaks and they die. Very clear. He is the one that speaks with authority. He's also holy. In 15.4, we see his holiness. I don't have to go to each one of these. He's also the just judge. Look back at chapter 5. Let's read this little section in verse 1 to 5 again. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and, and on the back, sealed up with the seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open up the book to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open up the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open up the book and its seven seals. Listen, we saw last time we were in Revelation 4, this whole idea is is that we were all made to worship God, right? That's why we were created. And as we... We put our play, ourselves in John's spot. We want the world to be back to the way it's supposed to be, right? Everybody wants this false religion to stop, don't we? We're very much like him. I've been grieving with Paul or with John from 5 1 to 5. Oh, who will come? 
But we have the answer, don't we? We know the one that's worthy. The one that was slain, that rose from the dead. The Lamb of God. And listen, when the Lamb of God comes, it is not going to be pretty. When the Lamb of God comes, the next time, the first time the Lamb of God came, He came to what? Take away the sins of the world. The next time the Lamb of God comes, guess what's going to happen? Destruction. Death. Billions of people will die. God does not take sin lightly and the rejection of His Son. The world is supposed to be worshiping Him. So this grappling that John is going through is relieved when he sees that Jesus is the one that has come to be the just judge and he will open those seals. Look at verse 9. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. God wants things put back to the way they're supposed to. Who is the one that's worthy to do that? The lamb that was slain. And guess what we see, folks? The just judge steps up and guess what he does? Verse six, or Chapter 6, verse 1. And then I saw the lamb broke one of the seven seals. And guess what happens? Judgment starts to happen. This is a bittersweet message. Everybody wants chapter 4 and 5, right? Everybody's ready for the world to get set back to the way it's supposed to be. How many of you want Jesus to come back? I want things to be straightened out, don't you? But it also means death. It means a lot of death. It means a lot of judgment. It is going to be difficult. Yet Jesus is worthy of worship. We see that in that verses, those verses that we just read. And Jesus is the Lamb of God. When I think of a lamb, I don't know about you, but when I think of a lamb, I think of a gentle creature, right? He was gentle the first time he came. But this lamb has teeth. He's, he's a wrathful lamb, too. The first time he came, he was sacrificial. The next time he comes, he will be wrathful. The Bible is very clear that judgment is coming. In chapter 5, verse 6, he's slain. Chapter 6, verse 1, he begins to judge. In chapters 12 through, or in chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, look at this. Look at his judgment. This is how bad it is. This is the sixth seal, verse 12. And I looked when I when he broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when it's shaken by the wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every, you see that? Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, verse 16, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Mother Nature. No, from the presence of Him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the... Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Answer, no one. One day. Do you understand? It took me 26 hours to fly from one side of the planet to the other. It's a huge planet. Do you understand? One day, this sixth seal, he's going to shake every island on the whole planet. I mean... Do you understand? We think of the planet as just this safe place as a whole. It's not a safe place when the lamb is angry. When the lamb is wrathful, it's going to be scary. It's not going to be pretty. You say, well, Mike, why are you talking about this? Well, I'm hoping you'll see what we're facing. It'll wake us up, right? 
We need to take serious what's going to come. And you see it throughout the book, all the way through the book, everywhere you go, war from the wrath of the Lamb. Yes, there's some positives, but the wrath of the Lamb is a scary place to be. Then notice, however, he is also, in the midst of all of this wrath, you see throughout the book of the Revelation, you also have these little spots where God's compassion is still displayed, even in that tribulation period. In chapter 7, you have the 144,000 are sealed, and then in chapter 14, they are shown to be a preview of their ruler ruling with him. What we see is, is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. We also see what Jesus does. Look at what he does. We'll start first with what he has done. What he's done, look back at, look at chapter 12, verse 11. This is mentioned a couple of times throughout. He's atoned for us through his death. We see that in chapter 1, verse 5, and 5, 6, 5, 9, 7, 14. It's mentioned all the way through. But in chapter 12, verse 11, and they overcame him, that is the believers, the, the believers at this time, the Jewish believers in this time, and they overcame him, that is the beast, because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when, they, when faced with death. The idea here is, is that the sacrifice or the atoning death of Christ is the thing that gets the believers through the difficult times, even in that time. It's the same way for us today, right? Why do we continue on? What do we keep doing even though there's this persecution and even though people call us crazy and even though I'm standing in this temple and everybody thinks I'm a lunatic, I say Jesus is the only way and he's your hope. Why do we keep doing it? Because he atoned for our sin. He paid for our sin. We're new. We know him and what he has done. He's paid for our sins and it makes a difference in our life, doesn't it? We live different because of him. And what he's done. And he's made us what? What are we? We're a kingdom of priests. That's what it says in 510. He's made us his own, a kingdom of priests. Look at 510 again. Look, this is what it says. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That's what we are, folks. Even now, that's what we are. Are we proclaiming him? Are we living for him? You ask, why do I go to this mundane job that's so boring? It's so hard to work in my job. My boss treats me so bad. How about this? You're working so that you can give and help support missionaries around the world. How is it that you got these watered-down pastors that have very little of the Bible and they make $40 a month. People live on practically nothing and we have all of this. We should be sending out thousands of missionaries, shouldn't we? There's 160 million professing believers in America. 160 million professing believers. Do you understand that if everybody of those 160 supported only a tenth of a missionary, just a tenth, we could send out 1.6 million missionaries. But we're not. What's wrong with us? I have, I'm going to, I'm going to be honest with you, folks. I have a dream for our church. Oh, I have a dream. <laughs> I have a vision for our church. I want to raise up men and ladies in our church, and I want to raise up men to pastor this church, and I want to go to the mission field. And I want you all to send me. There's too many people that need the Lord. There are too many countries that don't have the gospel. Who's with me? You don't need me. You don't need Mark. You don't need us. We need to go. 
But we need to send people. I'd like, to have, I'd like to have this happen within 10 years. Are you with me? Eight would be better. Five would be my dream. We need to raise up people that can take care of this church, and then we need to go. He died for me. And I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. Notice Jesus is doing some great things too. Verse 19, it says, chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 9, that he is continuously loving his own. He is loving us now. He's also revealing himself to his own. In chapter 1, verses 11 to 20, he reveals himself. Then in all the letters to the churches, he reveals himself, tells more about himself. Chapter 14, verse 6, he reveals himself to his own. That's what he's all about. All of us that know Christ, guess what? He's loving us now, and guess what? He's revealing himself to us over and over and on all the time. As we read our word, we know him more. It's good news, isn't it? He's also aware of his own, and he sees us, and he knows our circumstances. He knows what we're going through. Look at chapter 8. Look at this. Chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. What is this? God hears the prayers of the persecuted. He hears it. He hears it. And guess what? It's very interesting. This is part of the seventh seal judgment. This is very interesting. In, verse, in chapter 6, there's also another one mentioned of the whole idea of prayers. Did you know that the prayers of the persecuted move God to action? It's a judgment. It's considered a judgment. Whenever we pray and we ask God to have vengeance, guess what? He hears it. I don't know about you guys, when I was sitting in that temple, I was like, Lord, okay, let me get outside the building, take it out, wipe it out. This is a travesty. God hears that. Do you understand that when you pray, God, have judgment on these false teachers, what happens? He hears it. And he acts. This is no different. Just in the tribulation, it doesn't start then. He starts now. Those are imprecatory prayers. New Testament imprecatory prayers, right? Oh, Lord, please. Avenge your name. I'm ready. Jesus also gives eternal life. He's presently giving. Finally, we see what Jesus will do. Oh, this is so amazing. Jesus will remove a local church from its program, his program if they don't repent. You see that in chapter 2, verse 5. Folks, if we're not about Christ and he is not our first love, guess what? The church will not stay. He will get rid of it. Jesus also will glorify and reward the overcomers. And you see this throughout chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 11. Look at this one. This one's amazing. Again, chapter 3, verse 11. Laodicea, Philadelphia first. In chapter 3, verse 11, Philadelphia is the church that's suffering. It says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. I can't wait to have that name. How about you? It's one of those names that has never been blasphemed. Longing for the day of glory, aren't you? Jesus will make war with his enemies. We see this. Look over at chapter 19. This is at the end. 
We read a little bit of it, but look at the end. Verse 17. Jesus is returning. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and those who sit on them and flesh of all men, both the free men and the slaves and the small and the great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their named armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophets who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received his mark, the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Judgment's coming. It's a guarantee. How do we know? Because the Bible says Jesus is going to judge the world. It's going to happen. How bad will it be for the enemies? Oh, I can't give you all of these, but folks, it's going to be bad. The, the first judgments, the sealed judgments, he sends false peace. God does. Then there's the lamb will send a great war. There's going to be a war. Then the lamb will send a financial crisis. People won't be able to buy the, just the plain normal things. Then there will be a great death that comes over. The ashen horse. And a third of the pop, or a fourth of the earth's population will be wiped out. That's 1.5 billion people will die if it was right now. Think about that. Folks, we see the news with France right now. Rough, how many people died? Roughly 150. And the world goes, this is unbelievable. What's it going to be like when one quarter of the planet dies? 1.5 billion people. That's just one judgment. Then he hears the prayers of the people that says, Avenge, and that's a judgment. And then there's a great earthquake that we read about. That's chapter 6. That's just the first round of judgment. <laughs> that's just the first round. There's two more judgments to come. Two more rounds. In chapter 8, the trumpets. The Lamb will send hail and fire from heaven. He'll send a great mountain into the sea, this, it, it, most likely an asteroid or, or a meteor. Then there's a meteor, a burning star will come, and it will destroy all the water, the fresh water. The lamb will then darken the heavenly objects. If it gets dark, it's going to be real cold. It'll be much worse than Rochester, New York. <laughs> and then the lamb will release the locust. Oh, y'all want to read something? Read chapter 9. You know what the locusts do? They come and they can't kill the people. They just torture them for five months. And people want to die, but they can't. God just allows these locusts to torture people. Why? This is judgment. God takes sin serious. We're halfway through. The Lamb will then release four fallen angels, it appears, and two million demons will come up. Two million demon army. You think the world's going to be a, a scary place to be? Just to kill. Then there's the seventh, which is ultimately the next seven. Bold judgments. And these happen right before Jesus returns. One after the next. And they're different. Some people say that they... They're just recapitulations of the same ones. If you read the order, they're obviously different. These are waves and waves of judgment. The Lamb will send sores on all the rebellious people on the earth. So everybody will have a Job experience. Boils and, or sores. The Lamb will then contaminate the rest of the seawater, which means what? Everything dies. All the, all the, all the fish of the sea die. Then he'll contaminate the rest of the fresh water, which means, guess what? No water, nothing to drink. It's going to be a bad place to live. 
you can see why the, 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 some passages appear to show that there's an overlap before the millennium gets to full going with the kingdom. You've got to clean up the place. The place is going to be one mess. Then the Lamb will cause the sun to scorch the men with fire. In other words, he'll make the sun shine brighter. Before it was dark, you're freezing to death. Next thing you know, you're roasting to death. These are all things that God is describing. This is coming. Do you understand? The Lamb will cause a darkness that includes, it literally says they will gnaw their tongues, wanting to die. And then the Lamb will clear the way for the world's final judgment. He'll, it says that he'll dry up the Euphrates. Why? Well, because he's going to clear the way so that all the armies can come together at Armageddon so he can do what? Destroy them in, in, in Revelation 19. Man, I, I don't know about you. I'm going through this with these people. I was preaching all the way through this, and I, all I could think is, man, I hope you know the gospel. I kept saying the gospel to them. At one point I was begging them, please, do you know Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in him? You can face this. Should we be scaring people? The Bible scares me. Doesn't it scare you? If not, we need to read it to them more. And then we should see in 16, the last of them. I don't know about you guys, but a great earthquake with 100-pound hailstones. 100-pound hailstones. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Run for cover, right? The world will be a scary place to live. And this is coming. It's a guarantee. How do I know it's going to happen? Because God says it's going to happen. And then he will return. I can't get through all of this, but you get the gist. How many of you are ready for him to return? Everybody's ready for him to return, but nobody really wants that judgment. Do you? All of those things are going to happen before Revelation 19. And then Revelation 19 comes and he comes back. He's got to clean up and wipe out all of those that are opposed to him before he returns. It's very clear. Look at 19. When you think of those judgments, what do you think? There's two things that go through your head. One is, I don't want to be here. That's one. Also, I don't want anybody else to be there. I don't want any of my loved ones to be there, right? Aren't we thinking that? How many of you think, hallelujah! Does anybody think that? <laughs> Who thinks hallelujah when you think of all those judgments? Well, we think that. You know why? Because even more important than my family living, I know this sounds harsh, even more than all my loved ones living, even more than the billions and billions of people that are rejecting him, I want something more than that. I want God to be honored. He deserves to be worshipped. More than my family, more than anything I have in this world. And so, at the end of the day, you know what I say? Hallelujah. Because I want Christ to come back. And I want this world to be set up the way it's supposed to because he deserves worship. And that's why all the angels and all the multitudes do what chapter 19 verses 1 to 6 state. Y'all stand and we'll read this to conclude. Right before Christ returns. I'd love to do this together. Can y'all do that? Let's see if you can do it. See if you can pull it off. The Kachin do it. If you, don't, if you have a different translation, try to read off the board. All right, we're all reading it together. So in other words, you've got to kind of stay together. When we do it, 
when we did it with the kitchen, they all read together, and it sounded amazing. So let's do it together. You ready? All right, just follow my voice. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God and all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this glimpse of what you are going to do. Lord, we know that there are many that need to hear the gospel. We pray that you will prepare our hearts to either be sending or going. Help us, Lord, to be a church that is always thinking missions-minded. Help us to be praying for Ryan and his family as they proclaim the gospel in Taiwan. Oh, Lord, please make us a missions-minded church and help us, Lord, to proclaim the glory of the Lamb and to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to value you above all things, including the things of this world. God, if there's any sin in our hearts, we pray that you will help us to repent and turn to you. Oh, Lord, may you be exalted in our lives. May you be exalted in this church. We are thankful for Christ. We pray that we will live as those that are thankful for what he has done. We worship you today. We exalt you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.